0: Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Vanity Fair. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. I am delighted and proud to introduce him as Academy Award winner.
1: And the Oscar goes to...
2: And the Oscar goes to... The winner, it's a tie. And any little girl who's,
3: who's practicing their speech on the telly, you never know. Mom,
1: I just want an Oscar.
0: I am Katie Rich, and I'm sitting here crammed at a table... In Person with David Canfield.
2: Hello, welcome to my apartment. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, David, we are together in person, which is very unusual because I'm in Los Angeles for our live podcast, which is happening... Tonight, as you listen to this, if you're hearing it on Tuesday, we're very excited about it. Uh, but first, we have two interviews we want to share as Oscar voting wraps up. And first, we're going to hear your conversation with our table mate from the Critics' <laughs> Choice Awards on Sunday night,
2: Julianne Moore. I had a very busy uh, few days of running into Julianne Moore. Um Which is is not a brag by any means, but she's been been around uh, and so have I. And so that's kind of where we start off the conversation is uh, we had recorded just after the AFI Awards where May December was honored. Um, And this is the first time in a while she's gotten to make the rounds with a Todd Haynes movie, uh, one she very clearly loves. Well,
0: and something you were saying to me last night that I noticed, she was sitting next to Charles Milton at our table for May-December, and she seems not quite protective over him, but kind of like, look, I've been down this road before. He's new to this. She seems to have a really interesting relationship with her co-star here, and I think you guys talked about this in this interview.
2: Yeah, we talked about uh, exactly that. Um, She mentioned giving him some advice in terms of how to navigate this whole uh, circuit, and also kind of being in awe of him a little bit at at how he's handled it, um, especially given that... They were really thrown in mid-season after the strike. They started doing panels immediately. I met them as a group pretty quickly after it ended. And I think for her, being a part of a film with Todd Haynes, uh, you know, her longtime collaborator and kind of having the combination of that with this really exciting new talent has been special for her.
0: I think we should also say that, you know, Charles Melton has got a lot of the attention around May December for very good reason, but she is so great in this movie in such a hard role, which again, she's worked with Todd Haynes a lot. She's done it a lot for him. It doesn't come as a surprise, but it's still, I feel like we're taking her for granted in some ways. So and I'm glad this interview can maybe start uh, making up for that.
2: Yeah. Uh, this is the goal. She, she deserves <laughs> it. She's wonderful in the movie. And yeah, we definitely get into the trickier aspects of that role, which continued to be tricky as, as people talk about it, as, as, Some inspirations from the movie have uh, spoken out against it uh, and things of that nature.
0: Um, Well, I'm excited to hear it. Let's hear your conversation with the star of May December, Julianne Moore.
2: Well, Julianne Moore, thanks so much for being here. Uh, You and I saw each other just hours ago uh, because (laughs) at the AFI Awards, it is that time of year. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Um, but i've I've been seeing you making the rounds with this film uh in a way where you know it happens with films that are getting embraced to a degree, and that's always nice. um, so i'm I'm curious just so far these last few months, how you've experienced traveling with this movie, uh, a movie where you all guys you all seem very tightly knit on this crew we
1: are i have to say one of the things that's been so really wonderful about this project is how how close we have been from the very beginning it was a group of people that that really hit it off right away i mean this is my this is my fifth movie with todd my seventh movie with killer films yeah. so obviously i've worked with them for a long time and had a very fruitful collaboration But this is my first time working with Natalie, um, who has just just completely, who's somebody I always admired, um, both personally and professionally. And she's really superseded all of my expectations. She's just such a wonderful, wonderful actor and a great human being. So we just, it just sort of clicked. And Charles, who um, kind of came into this you know, without any of us knowing him or even his work, really has is also as well as being supremely talented and really a revelation in this part. Um, such a lovely person. So we just the nice thing has been that this is a movie that we we all really care about, but we all we get along and it's nice to it's nice to have a little crowd to to hang around with. Yeah.
2: First of all, Charles is uh, brilliant in the movie, we must say. Yeah. Uh, we had him on the show a few months ago. Ah, uh, good. I'm really interested in in the dynamic between the three of you at events like these. I'm curious if there's been any kind of mentorship and just what it is to walk into these rooms and be with, you know, these incredible uh, groups of people um, or just sort of initiating him in in some way.
1: Well, I think there's we have a tremendous amount of camaraderie, I think, um, um, among all of us, and particularly um, between the three, among the three actors. And we've leaned into each other really heavily just in terms of keeping each other company and, you know, just being together, offering friendship and support. And for Charles, I think that Natalie and I have been able to offer him some advice. I hope we have anyway. I mean, um, really, primarily the advice is to enjoy it. try to and also to really just enjoy meeting these you know tremendous people that you're gonna meet on the circuit. There there were so many great films this year and so many great performances. And I think it's nice to I don't know it's nice to put a person behind that performance, right? You Mm -hmm. know, so that's what we all we all get to do. It's been really nice.
2: Yeah. You mentioned your history with both Todd and killer films um and and one Narrative that has emerged this season has been perhaps the underappreciation, maybe by the Academy, uh, of Christine Vachon, the producer of Killer Films, and Todd Haynes, the director, who's never been nominated for directing. Um, I'm curious from your perspective, as someone who's worked on these films over the years, and these are really daring films, films that have lasted, um, why you think that maybe there is a moment now of looking at this body of work that these collaborators of yours over decades have created um, in a different way?
1: I don't know, but I'm glad about it. <laughs> I mean, I'm overjoyed because I do think that, I do think that the work that they have done over these last, of these last three decades has been, you know, uh, really underappreciated. It's, um, I think they're extraordinary iconoclastic artists, you know, Todd and Christine. And I think that, They have always pursued what is interesting to them artistically. They don't really look at a project as something that's going to be, you know, they're they're not looking to make a million dollars, you know, millions of dollars making a movie. They they really just want to kind of find a way to tell the stories that they want to tell. Um, And like I said, I've been the beneficiary of that (laughs) (laughs) because I get to be in these amazing stories with them. I think that. It, I mean, they're they're such an interesting pair too. When you think that mm-hmm. they both came out of school at the same time, and they both had these these kind of interesting, compelling artistic desires, and they've continued to to follow them and to produce this remarkable work, and and then and done it with. You know, Christine's always very smart because she understands what it takes to produce a yeah. film, right? She understands the commercial pressures, but she doesn't bow to this idea of profitability above all else. Mm-hmm. You know, she really she really works with uh, a filmmaker to help them achieve their vision.
2: Yeah. You, I believe, met Todd auditioning for, say, if your first movie together. Can you take me back to... That moment, and, and really how he initially struck you, how Christine initially struck you—they were coming out of this queer cinema movement and really particular cinema scene, and and this was obviously a big step forward for both of them.
1: Yeah. Oh my God. And we were all so young. I mean, we sort of make jokes about it now, and we look back, you know, um, all of us sort of acting like we knew what we were doing, <laughs> but we were very, very based on, new on the film. You did. <laughs> <laughs> it, is a, it is a brilliant Thanks. movie. But I received the screenplay. I was actually working on a movie in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, with um, Peter Falk, Ellen Burstyn, who was here today. She was honored today today at AFI. Uh Uh-huh. That's right. Um, And and D.B. Sweeney. Mm. And it was like a family movie. And I received the script, and I'd never read anything like it in my life. I was so utterly compelled by it. It was so, so rigorous and, and so specific. And I felt like... I couldn't believe it was coming my way, and then I had an opportunity to audition for it. I was like, why isn't this cast? This should be cast with someone. And I flew home to New York to audition, and I was really sort of—I felt like it was very clear that what what I saw on the page, I really understood. But I also knew that if I was misinterpreting that, then I wasn't right for this particular filmmaker. Mm. You know, so I was really nervous, and it was a, kind of a hot summer day. And I remember I was—I wanted to look kind of blank, so I wore like a white T-shirt and white jeans. And I tied my hair back, and I went in, and you know, there was Todd and there was Christine, and um, it was all very was in an office room with like lots, lots of filing cabinets and all this clutter <laughs> everywhere. And Tom and I really didn't speak. You know, he's super, super friendly, but we didn't have a long conversation. And he had been told, unbeknownst to me, that I wouldn't read, oh, which wow. is so crazy. <laughs> I know. So somebody had told him I wouldn't read. And I, I, we, we started talking and I said, do you want me to read this? And he was like, yeah. So <laughs> like I read one scene and he was like, okay. I said, do you want me to read another one? And I read that, and he said okay. And I said, i want going to read another one." And he said okay. And I read mm-hmm. a third one, and then he said okay. I said okay, bye. <laughs> <laughs> and that was it. And and Todd said later that he and Christine looked at each other and said that was Carol White, mm. which was kind of, I mean, for me, one of the most wonderful moments of my career, honestly. That that somehow I was able to interpret um what i read what he wrote what what i saw on the page and i think that the the nature of our collaboration has been that we have a similar sensibility we are kind of i don't know i think you know we're we're the same age we i think grew up with the same kind of genres influencing us mm-hmm. and but for for one reason or another it's it really has been a, a thing where i we can see each other
2: hmm. has his Styles, a director, change at all from your perspective, and, and since that first movie, taking May December as a comparison point, how have you seen him evolve? Let's say
1: he's—I want to say he was fully formed. <laughs> I, mean, I really <laughs> fair <do>. enough <laughs> because the thing about Todd and uh, is that he does so much work, mm-hmm. so much preparation. He does a tremendous amount of research, and certainly when he's written a screenplay himself, he's done all of that work on it. But just in terms of of how he frames something, how he, you know, he storyboards everything himself. I, I feel like you, um, I can look at a shot. I can, you know, look through the the, the lens and sort of understand his storytelling by the way he frames something. He's really, really specific. He's specific in his in his camera moves and his choices and his editing choices and his musical choices and his and in, in tone. You know, that stuff was all present. You know, when we made Safe and also, of mm-hmm. course, very present when we made May, December. I, I, as an actor, he gives me so much scaffolding for my performance. Mm-hmm. I sort of understand the world that he's contained me in. And so within all of that, because I, I know how he's telling that story, I have incredible freedom. It's It's like... Yeah, I don't know. It just makes me um I, I just his 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 efforts are so tremendous. Um he's so incredibly thorough. His knowledge of of cinema is formidable, but it's matched, you know, really only by his empathy for human beings, for what it means to be human and to be to be in these kind of um sometimes heartbreaking human scenarios we find ourselves in. Mm.
2: Every time I interview him, I feel like I get a, a masterclass in in cinema and cinema history. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I, yeah, yeah. I'm curious if he's given you any of that, like what he's introduced you to uh, in terms of filmmakers. And some of his references are, you know, pretty down the middle, but some are quite obscure. And I remember one interview I came out, and I was like, "What is this movie he's talking about?"
1: You know what he said the other day? We were doing a we we're doing a Q and A, and somebody asked me about judging a character and not judging a character. And can you, is it, is it important that an actor not judge their character? Mm-hmm. And I said, hell no, <laughs> I can judge them. I mean, like I judge my character. I mean, me personally, Julie, mm-hmm. I can I can look at my, my character in May, December, and I have lots of judgments about mm-hmm. it. You know, I'm like, I don't need to feel, I don't need to tell myself a story that what she did was right yes. or something, you know, I, I, I you know, I have a completely different opinion. And when I said that, Todd said, and I wish I could remember the word, he came up with a German word, which means exactly that. That it was, it's uh. something that that Douglas Sirk said about like, that in order to create, you know, great art, you don't have to kind of merge yourself with the mm. story. You can have some distance and that doesn't mean that it's not affecting right. um, and emotional, but that, but you don't have to be aligned with with it and i was like no i wish i could remember the german word cuz i was like todd what's that yeah. that's amazing yeah
2: i have to imagine that happens with him fairly often <laughs> some version right. of that yeah yes yeah.
1: yes he's he's pretty he's very smart but like i said he also doesn't you know he's he's there's there's something so wonderful about his like i said his empathy mm-hmm. for people and how he how he sees people who are who have been otherized in one way or another been kind of in a place where they're subjugated mm-hmm. you know it's like he he sees that and he's able to tell tell their stories i think really eloquently <laughs>
2: Terms apply. So you saying you have judgments about this character, I would imagine. Everyone <laughs> watching this movie does. Uh, yeah. I know the yeah. word you've used a lot in describing, you know, the the sort of impetus for telling the story or sort of this point in her life is, is transgression. Uh, and, and that she transgressed in a really public way, a really dramatic way. Um yeah. Is there a way in which you think about transgression as an actor? You go into a role like that and and given that you do come in with those kinds of judgments, it, it changes the way you approach them at all? I'm, I'm just curious.
1: No, because I think that you can hold two ideas at the same time. Mm-hmm. Do you know? I think that I think you can approach a character or a story holistically that you can say, like, I'm, you know, how do I tell this story and how do I represent this person from her point of view, which is what I'm doing yes. as an actor. But at the same time I'm doing that, I'm also myself with my own, my own thoughts and actions and whatever, and I'm, I'm separate from it. I always think that one of the things that's really important with, with acting, and, and I think for, for me, film acting in particular, it's something that engages you emotionally as a person because you kind of have to mm-hmm. let these—you're literally a conduit for, for these feelings and these words. But your intellect— is there and and that intellect sees the camera and they see all the other people and they see the lights and they hear the traffic and they, you know, and so it's like that kind of that's that's what's so exciting about about filmmaking, that there is this parallel um kind of experience that you're having as a human being where you're able to hold this kind of um this this emotional experience, you know, within your your intellectual experience, which is registering the fact yeah. that um you're creating something.
2: Mm. Am I right that th- this came together fairly quickly? There wasn't much time for rehearsal or anything like that?
1: No, we, I mean, we didn't have um, time. We didn't have money. We didn't have, you know, we had lots and lots of scheduling issues. It was sort of about when when Todd was going to be available, when Natalie was going to be available, when I was going to be available. Yeah. And suddenly there was this weird little window in October. And that's kind of why we ended up in Savannah, too, because it needed to be, you know, warm weather. And the this, this script had initially been set in Camden, Maine, and it was not going to be warm there. Right. Yeah, we were just trying to make accommodations so that it would all, all work. And there was even a point, you know, because Natalie has to, you know, slowly begin to copy my mannerisms. Yes. Where we worried schedule-wise that they would have, Todd was like, we might have to start with Natalie before you get there, because I was supposed to have another job right mm. in front of it. And he was like, what are we going to do? Do you want to just, like, get on a Zoom with her and, like, huh. figure it out? And I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> Happily... That movie moved, and then we were able to start all together, but with really no rehearsal at all.
2: Uh, It's a nice segue into my next question, though, which is, how did you observe her beginning to copy you? Like, were there things you were noticing, uh, particularly in the beginning stages, and you are making significant choices here, where you were like, oh, she's picking up on this, she's picking up on that?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Todd and I spoke about what would characterize Gracie. You know, I mean, so so of all the work that I do as an actor, I, I think about that character's physicality. I think about their vote, you know, how their voices. I think, you know, you, those are all the choices that you make when you're working on something. Yeah. But this was even kind of um, um, more urgent because I needed to establish these characteristics and characteristics that were interesting enough that we could that Natalie would have something to yeah. actually copy. So um, in thinking about Gracie and her um you know she has this like I said going back to this this transgression which which she kind of describes as like a, a, a you know great romance yes. that she has you know, she has met this person and they rescued her. You know, she's the princess that's been rescued by a prince. But, of course, the reality is that he's a boy and she has to kind of elevate this boy to being a man. And she's, you know, she she subjugates herself to that narrative. You know, she's the princess and he's he's taking care of her. So there's a childlike quality um, with Gracie that remains and, of course, a hyper femininity to this princess kind of thing. So so there were gestures and things that I kind of created a way of moving. And, and then I thought about, I was kind of thinking about childlike speech. And, mm-hmm. and of course, something that we associate with kids is like maybe like a lisp. lisp and yes. Todd and I talked about that. <laughs> and so those were the things that I kind of came in with, uh, you know, and worked with. And then Natalie brilliantly, like I said, in real time, of course I can see what she's doing you know, of course I can, because she's, you know, I'm sitting in a chair with my legs crossed and my arms crossed, and Natalie's sitting in a chair the exact same way, Mm -hmm. and she's kind of copying my cadence, and, but what she's doing, which is, which is, because, you know, Gracie is desperate for Elizabeth's approbation. She wants Elizabeth to tell the story the way Gracie wants it told, and so what Natalie is doing by copying her and, and um, flattering her at, Gracie's most composed, most feminine, you know, most presentational, most performative is, is playing right into what Gracie wants. So Natalie was able to do that, make me feel good as a character, and also it was a lot of fun as an actor. Mm -hmm. Like I really, really enjoyed it. So she was able to do that, and then also I think kind of wonderfully and devilishly that when I actually saw the film, you realize kind of the finer things that she's copying, the things that that Gracie, the character, wouldn't want to see. Um, Anyway, so it was intensely pleasurable to work with Natalie in this way, and I think that we kind of, it was just like, it was a wonderful partnership where we kind of built this, this, um, these women and their and yeah. their behavior together.
2: It's also so on the fly as you're describing because you didn't have that prep time. I wonder if that was maybe in, in hindsight a kind of a blessing.
1: You know, listen. <laughs> of, you know, I was just saying, like, I know you, they, you know, as they say in preschool, you get what you get, and you don't get upset. You yes. know, it's like you don't know, you don't know what would be better or not. But that's that's what we had. But I do think that people on this movie were incredibly collaborative and kind and open, and were people who take the work very seriously. But they don't take themselves personally very seriously. So it felt easy. It felt great to do it together.
2: Yes. Well, one reason I, I th- had that thought is um, one of the beauties of award season is you have lots of people coming together and all of your Kids Are All Right cast has been yes, also out amazing. there. And I, I, I interviewed Annette Bening and we had talked about the fact that you really had no rehearsal for that movie.
1: Right, right.
2: And yeah. and that's another case where I look at the dynamic between, very different dynamic between two women in that movie. But again, I mean, that's it is one of my favorite movies and there's an incredible oh, richness between... The three of you, but especially the two of you yeah. in that that relationship.
1: Thank you. I think. I mean, also that's the nature of independent film. You yes. don't have enough money, so you don't have enough time. You know, that's really what money equals time. Um, and like I said, we would all we we would all like more time, but we don't <laughs> always get it. But what we get um, is great material, and and so that just lifts lifts everything up.
2: Yeah. So when you come into a movie like May, December, and, and you know that, you know, you've been in this industry for, for a bit, you know what, uh, what is required, especially of a character like this, are there things, say, in, you know, the costuming and in, in the technical aspects of it that you know you're going to need, you're, you're going to need to maybe improvise with a little bit uh, versus on a bigger budget film?
1: Oh, gosh. Well, yeah. (laughs) I mean, I mean, I think that you're, I mean, I'm always, I think, you know, costumes are incredibly important and and hairstyles and wigs and, you know, color of the wigs and all of those things were things that we considered in this. These were, you know, everything that a person wears, um, how they do their makeup, you know, how Mm -hmm. they move, all of those things are signifiers to the world about who, how we want to be seen. Um, consciously or unconsciously. And so you take all of those things into, mm-hmm. you know, into consideration when you're working on it. And with, with our wonderful costume designer, April Napier, we, we, there was one specific item that I wanted. There's a, there's a dress that became wildly popular during the pandemic called the nap dress. And it's a dress that's very, very feminine. It's made in lots of different fabrics. It has kind of smocking on it and these like little ruffles on the shoulders. And it's so soft, the idea is that you could mm-hmm. sleep in it, you know. But it's very feminine and it's it's um, a little infantilizing. Mm-hmm. And we were, I was telling April about this dress and we were placing the dress. And I said, I want to make sure that it's in the scene where I'm on the bed when I'm crying yes. you know when Charles comes in and in order to do that it has to be in the makeup scene with Natalie before like so that dress ends up playing in in like three scenes in a row um and very we 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 placed very specifically because of the physical actions of lying in the bed moving around and also being in that scene with Natalie and having those like little ruffles kind of being really prevalent you mm-hmm. know while I'm doing her makeup
2: well oh. I do want to move to the um The genre element of this movie, it was categorized at the Golden Globes as a comedy, uh, which sparked some conversation, let's say. And there's been a a larger conversation about, uh, you know, how funny is the movie? How funny should the movie be considered? I'm wondering on the set, are there moments that feel funny to you? Um, I know you've said that there are moments that in the film play is funny and should. Um, I'm wondering how it, it felt to play them, though.
1: Well, you know, Charles has said this that you know you're never you're, even. I think when you're playing maybe an out-out out comedy, you can't. You know, the stakes are stakes are high. Yep. You know, people when people are communicating to one another, you know, you have to make sure the stakes are high. That's and that's only that's that's the way in comedy you you ensure that it will be funny, right? Mm-hmm. Is to make people mean it. I I think we weren't we were not playing it with an eye toward that. There are some lines like. There's, you know, one of my lines that, one of my favorites is, you try going through life without a scale, see how that goes, which I think is a really funny line. (laughs) But of course, she's not intending it that way. She's. She's dead serious mm-hmm. about it, you know, about like the, the, the cultural um, imprisonment of, of, of weight and, and, and women, you know. So, but it ends up being a funny line.
2: She is devastated at the thought that there may not be enough hot dogs. She takes it very seriously. Well,
1: right. with that, you know, that, that line is also, of course, framed by the music. You yes. know, so would that be funny? You know, what, what Todd's doing is like he's, he's saying, Oh, wait, she seems to be saying something innocuous, but I'm going to put this kind of big piece of music on it. Yeah. So the audience knows right away, What? You know, so that, that juxtaposition in and of itself is funny. You yeah. know, it's, it's jarring. This idea of like um, a situation about how much food you're going to have um, shouldn't be that dramatic but it is because of the music.
2: Yes. that's Yeah, that's exactly what I asked. I feel like Todd, uh, as, as he's one to do, he, he amps it up uh, once you guys are yeah. done. <laughs> yeah. Um, the element, um, this is obviously an original story, uh, original script. Um right. The overlap with the Mary Kayla Turnout case is something that has been interesting to me. Uh, there was a clip going around of her... In an interview uh, with dialogue that is actually in the film. Uh, it's the who's the boss, who was the boss scene. It's just applied mm-hmm. in a different context. Um, I know you've talked a lot about this being original and and not based on that, but I am wondering right. if there were elements of that story that you did pay attention to in the creation of this character.
1: Listen, you know, Sammy Virch has, has spoken about this. This was very much, you know, that Laterno that case was very much an inspiration for this screenplay. You know, Sammy grew up in the 90s, sort of the heyday of tabloid culture, when you had Monica Lewinsky and Mary Kay Letourneau and O.J. Simpson, um, and this kind of the storytelling, this kind of um, rabid... Um, dramatic, you know, what's going to happen next kind of story. So I think she was responding to that. So, yeah, I mean, we did use it as inspiration, but I think we had to be very clear that this was, mm-hmm. this is a fictional creation of something that was similar. But I I wouldn't dare say that this is based on those people. I mean, it's just not. It's mm-hmm. like we, um, I think we all respond. I think in art, you know, you see these you know, Tom Wolfe was somebody who was famous for, for writing fictional stories mm-hmm. that sometimes felt reminiscent of um, something that had happened in the news, you know, or in society culture or something. So, so I think that there is a tradition of people being inspired by stuff that, you know, that's happened in real life. But, but no, and also we don't know – I mean, I think what's interesting about this story is that Todd is playing with, you know, narrative – who gets to tell the story? How has a story been told? Who told it? Why? Is it the truth? Who knows the truth? Nobody knows the truth of what happened in anything except the people that were there. But what's interesting about tabloids is that they people just keep putting a lens on it and telling a story in order to generate money.
2: Mm. Um, given the intensity of of this role. Um, I mentioned the comedy, but your character especially has really intensely emotional scenes. How easy is it for you to kind of turn that on and off? You are kind of an iconic crier of the screen, (laughs) uh, and this film is no exception. But I'm wondering at this point, having done that a few times, and this is a very uh, different kind of character, like what it looks like for you between takes.
1: You know, it's so interesting. I mean, obviously for like I'm like any I mean, I don't know, maybe some actors don't have anxiety about this, but whenever I feel like I have to produce something that's emotional, I always have some anxiety about it. And I'm like, "Oh, you know, is it going to yeah. uh, will I be able to deliver that? Can I deliver that at that moment? Is it going to work?" Um, but but the thing that I've learned after all of these years is that what really works for me is being relaxed. Is being with in a situation where I um, feel comfortable with my surroundings. I feel comfortable with the choices that I've made. I trust my collaborators, and I'm able to feel kind of free enough to to breathe and you know let it happen. Mm-hmm. That sounds very actory, but um, but there's something you know you have to do. I always say you need to do the work. You need to do the preparation. Um, in, in film in order to let the emotion happen to you on camera, because that's the beauty of, of film work, is that it could even happen to you for the first time, but you wanna make sure it happens on camera yeah. because you want the camera to capture it, you know? And that's what's kind of great. Sometimes you don't even know. Like like the, when we did the scene with the cake thing, I I just had a sense that, that she was gonna cry much more than was on the page. Because um, there was an earlier scene where she cries, and I wanted that one to be smaller, and this one I wanted to be kind of like huge, because mm-hmm. it's the middle of the movie. And I think what Gracie is feeling is that, like I said, there's, this, there's, the, there's the narrative that, that Gracie has told the world on one level, and then at the bottom, there's this transgression, and in between, there's all of this emotion and volatility and guilt and shame. And so, the composure when you see, you know, Gracie in her very public moments, and she's seemingly composed. That volatility, that emotional quality, is always there. Mm. That always exists. So here's somebody who's living with this kind of like vi- a vibration of. um. Of emotion constantly. Mm. So it's like, I wanted that, you know, in, in her private moments, it's, that's when it just kind of explodes. So it ended up being um, very hysterical. Because yeah. that's also, you know, that's what Joe has been dealing with his entire life. It's like, how does he care? He's having to care for this adult woman who's, who's got this kind of huge amount of emotion yeah. and need. need. She's very needy. <laughs>
0: So now we're going to hear the conversation I had with Jada Yuan, who is not an actor or a Hollywood person at all, but a journalist just like us. She works at the Washington Post, and she's also the author of Unleashing Oppenheimer, which is the official behind-the-scenes book for the film Oppenheimer. Jada has a really interesting personal connection to Oppenheimer. Her grandmother worked on the Manhattan Project. She grew up in Los Alamos, kind of surrounded by the legacy of all the work that you see in the film. Um, And she had a really interesting personal connection to the story before diving into it for writing this book. And one of the things that I thought was fascinating reading the book and talking to Jada about it was talking about the visual effects in Oppenheimer, which did not make the Oscar shortlist for visual effects, which kind of blows my mind, but won the Visual Effects Award at the Critics' Choice Awards that we were at, David, um, which I thought was a really worthy way of recognizing part of the film that feels like it's been under-discussed, even though we've been talking about it for so many months.
2: Yeah, I think it's it's a good movie to finish the first round of voting with because it is the front runner mm-hmm. and it, it's winning in a lot of areas. And to your point, it seems to reveal itself in a new way in terms of what makes it so exceptional um, with every passing award.
0: Yeah, um, yeah, I had a great time talking to Jada about it. Her book also is a great way to get into it. Um, so let's hear my conversation with the author of Unleashing Oppenheimer, Jada Yuan. So I'm so happy to welcome JD Yuan, a uh, fellow journalist and writer and Oscar obsessive, and just like friend in all things film festivals, and now a guest on our podcast because you're a published author. What an exciting circumstance.
3: It's so exciting. I'm so <laughs> glad to be on this. And I I listen to you all the time. Oh so. thank
0: you. Uh yeah, I feel like we all learn from each other over the course of these many award seasons. Um, but you're in a funny position this year because you are the author of the book Unleashing Oppenheimer. Um, which you wrote uh, as the film was being made. It's this really incredible, extensive look behind the scenes of the movie that, you know, I'm not biased. I can say I think it's going to win Best Picture. Um, but it's a funny way to have a window into this season, right? Like you follow all these movies all the time, but you've got this one like really in your back pocket. What's that been like?
3: I, it's actually it's been thrilling. Um, I have never kind of been on a ride like this with a movie. I, I cover them from afar or you know i've gone to a lot of those awards dinners where you're sort of wandering around and then you become best friends with you know the people <laughs> just the people who you see all the time i just i remember one year when i like hung out with Ezra Edelman just all the time <laughs> <laughs> because that was you know you're you're there and you keep seeing the same people over and over again um but this just it feels different cuz i feel like i've i have some sort of stake in This movie, I, I wrote the making of book of this movie, but it also, I grew up in Los Alamos, New Mexico, and my grandmother, Chen Xiong Wu, was a nuclear physicist who worked on the Manhattan Project and knew Oppenheimer. And so it just feels very special that Christopher Nolan let me write a book about the making of the movie.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I love in the foreword how you talk about what happened before Christopher Nolan asked you to write this book, that you kind of knew that they were filming near your hometown. You're like, I'm just going to go home. I'm going to sneak around and see what's going on, which is so funny to imagine in the background of the scenes of this movie, which is so meticulously made. So you don't ever imagine that there's a bunch of people in the 21st century standing in the background. Um, But what was that like when you're just kind of like looking around a building to see what Killian Murphy's up to?
3: Well, yeah, I mean, Christopher Nolan's sets, I think, normally are very tightly controlled. Um, I'm sure people in Chicago were like, what's happening? Are they they're blowing up a chocolate factory or whatever, whenever he he did. Oh, like on the um, Dark
0: Knight. Yeah, yeah, on the Dark (laughs) Knight.
3: Yeah. So I'm sure there were there are moments that people have witnessed things that have happened in his movie. But um, Los Alamos is an incredibly small town and um, word had just sort of spread that. Uh, and people weren't that great about keeping secrets about <laughs> where he was shooting. <laughs> and so I was able to find out um, through report- repertorial ways um, when they were shooting outside. And they were shooting outside um, Fuller Lodge, which is uh, the big blog building you see in the movie, which is where we had a graduation party. Um, I think... I, I I have trouble remembering like my childhood that that well, but I think my mom probably did jazzercise across the street. Um,
0: <laughs> <laughs> and you see it in the movie for like the Christmas party scene and a couple of other moments in the movie. The real one,
3: yeah. The, the Christmas party scene takes place inside the lodge, so I didn't get to witness that. But Killian does um, as Oppenheimer does a speech outside with all these flags mm-hmm. um, at the end of the Manhattan Project, and that's outside Fruhlur Lodge. So I witnessed that um, and. Christopher Nolan also shot outside Oppenheimer's Real House, which is just on a street that you go to as a kid called Bathtub Row, which is the real Bathtub Row where um, the scientists all live. It was all the senior scientists lived in this area where there had been set up houses. Like Los Alamos was a boys' school that got taken over by the Manhattan Project. And so this is where the the teachers lived. And it was called Bathtub Row because... They were the only houses with bathtubs, um, no kitchens, as Emily <laughs> Blunt says in the movie. Um, and anyway, so you know where Bathtub Row is, and I sort of snuck over there and was watching them film a laundry scene, which is literally like I'm just watching the bottom of Emily Blunt's legs. <laughs> um <laughs> as she hangs up a sheet <laughs> which is I mean, a that,
0: major moment in the movie that's kind of the the dark secret of film sets though right is if you're standing on a film set watching you're watching just this like tiny insignificant movement and like for the people who are making it they know what's going on and you're just like okay i guess they're they're standing there again and <laughs> go back to one
3: yeah and you can't you can't hear anything so i was just i was I was with a bunch of nurses from a dentist's office who were in their scrubs on their lunch break, (laughs) Um, and I had sent a letter over to Christopher Nolan and Emma Thomas, who's his producer and his wife, that was like, hey, I have all these connections, and I'm also a culture writer, and can I do an article for the Washington Post for you? And also, you know, I don't know, if you have a making-of book, just let me know,
0: (laughs) Do they? Us- this- I guess they would usually have them, right? Like ma- many huge movies have making of books like this. Maybe not as extensive of what as what you've done.
3: Yeah, mine, mine is the longest they've ever published. <laughs> <laughs>
0: congratulations!
3: But, congratulations! <laughs> yeah, Christopher Nolan has done three. So they started with Dunkirk, mm-hmm. um, and Interstellar, and then and then Tenet. But they're all they're all usually done by people who write making of books for a mm-hmm. living. Um, and I was someone who had never even written a book at all. Um, and they liked my connection and that's how, that's how I got involved. But I, I didn't find out in, you know, until much later after they finished filming in my hometown. And so it was just, it was like a lot of sneaking around and sort of, I, I met a bunch of the local crew, um, and we had beers, uh, (laughs) you know, out, um, in this brewery that's called Bats of Bro Brewing. Um, so it's it's named after Oppenheimer also. <laughs> There's a mural of Oppenheimer in the back. And uh, <laughs> the town is really into it. The town is really into it. I went back for when the movie premiered and um, they had like a vintage army truck outside. Cool. And, and they had made up the front of the, th- the movie theater to look like um, the, the guard gate for the Manhattan Project that you'll see in the movie. Yeah.
0: Yeah, because you mentioned in the book that when you grow up in New Mexico, in Los Alamos specifically, you never hear of Oppenheimer as anything other than a hero. And it's not like the movie shows him as unheroic, but it's complicated. And I think for a lot of us who grew up as part of the Cold War, we've kind of learned to think about it in a different way. Has it been received that way in Los Alamos? Is there a sense of being like, oh, no, you're talking about why it's bad? Or are they kind of prepared for that level of nuance?
3: Um that's difficult i i think that the the town is still proud of his accomplishments and it exists because he went there yeah it exists because he as a child went to Los Alamos and loved it so much and then and then he said he ruined it and he felt really bad about it <laughs> but um <laughs> so i think it's 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 less complicated for the people who live there. I think that they're proud of the history. I think um, I lived there until I was six years old. And I grew up in the valley. And my parents are, my dad doesn't really talk about politics. He's also a nuclear physicist. But um, I think that we all have a more complicated relationship with that legacy. Um, And sort of wondering, you know, what would have happened if we hadn't done this thing that killed hundreds of thousands of people. It was really horrible.
0: Yeah, but I also think the film gives you a lot to be proud of if you live in Los Alamos, right? Like it's it it, it does such an incredible job of celebrating this massive accomplishment while also reckoning with what came out of it and that both of those Mm -hmm. things can be true, um, which I think is what makes it really special.
3: Yeah, and I, I think that the film does a good job of of letting you know their mindset back in, in the time, which mm-hmm. was that was that someone was going to use this technology and they were really hoping it wasn't Hitler first. Ever wanted to go inside the Met Gala?
1: I'm Cho Minardi, and this week on The Run-Through with Vogue, we take you inside the world's most exclusive and glamorous party. We'll talk about the best looks from the red carpet and everything that happened after.
3: Listen to The Run-Through with Vogue wherever you get your
2: podcasts.
1: So for
0: the writing of the book process, you know, I'm reading through it and the the number of people that you're talking to and the granular detail you get to get into, you know, we do interviews with people about films all the time, but you have to fill a word space or you have to have a narrative to it. And you really get to be like, well, this week they were filming at UCLA and then the following week he got a haircut. Like, it's such a fun, satisfying deep dive. And I wonder how that felt for you, having written much shorter things to get to just like go all the way in on all of it. I, I
3: mean, it was it was really fun because I just I could call up. Uh, Ludwig Gorenson, who's, you know, an Oscar winning composer in the middle of the night and just be like, hey, are you available? I have 10 other questions about how you make music. <laughs> and, um, so the, it, that was, that was fun. I mean, there were a lot of holes that I needed to fill in. And I think the, the writing process was interesting because Chris is a is a pretty busy guy. And so I actually had to talk to everyone before I talked to Chris and Chris was the most important one. So yeah. I was sort of so I was in some ways filling in word gaps, like we would have a great quote from somebody that I had like put it into the placeholder. And then I would try to get Chris to talk about the same thing. And then we would like swap out quotes. <laughs> so <laughs> it was it was just a it was just a different process to um to have to do it. But it was so much fun to learn how they made everything. I mean, I think some of some of my favorite parts were talking to the researcher Lauren mm-hmm. Salazar, and I mean she made she she knew everything. She was one of my greatest sources, um, and she had binders and binders. I mean they made binders of what each actual scientist or actual real life person, because everybody's real in this movie, looks like and sort of what their characteristics were, and, and what then, their
0: parents looked like, right? Yeah. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah, incredible. I mean, they made like very incredibly detailed binders for everyone. And so they were trying to cast off people who kind of look like the real people. That was really incredible. I thought sort of the special effects, which I think are not going to get honored at the Oscars. Um, I don't
0: think they made, wait, did they make the short, I'm going to look that up.
3: They didn't make the shortlist. Yeah. They didn't make the shortlist, which I'm, Ferrari also didn't make the shortlist. And I'm just a little annoyed with the Sort of idea that if you create something on a computer, it's better than if you painstakingly create something in real life in camera.
0: Yeah. yeah. There's a shot in your book of um, one of the shots of Oppenheimer in bed with like the swirling lights in front of him and like just the idea that that existed in reality. I just hadn't thought about it. And I knew that they were all practical, but I don't think I knew it until I saw that picture. It really blew my mind.
3: Yeah, I, I mean, and it was incredible to hear how they were doing it, which was that, um, I mean, they started months ahead of production and were sort of, it's just Andrew Jackson and Scott Fisher, um, Andrew Jackson who does visual effects and Scott Fisher who does special effects. So he was more in charge of the blowing up of the bomb, um, but but they were just doing experiments and and like burning weird metals like thermite <laughs> and <laughs> you know just 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 putting things on like strings with beads on a stick that had a motor in it and then like swirling it in front of the camera and seeing what that happened. It, it just sounded really fun, honestly.
0: Yeah. I mean, the way that they talk about the special effects in it and then the way that then um, I think John Papsidera is the one who says that like Nolan thinks of the actors as a special effect too. And then you kind of go through like grand, like just the, the amount of granular levels that you get to get into on that. Um, I, I've never interviewed a casting director in depth like that. What do you learn from John Papsedera in those conversations?
3: Well, I, I mean, he knows he knows Chris incredibly well since he worked on every movie except for, I think from Memento, and then he didn't work on Insomnia, and then every other movie mm-hmm. after that. Um, so just he knows every single person in Hollywood and their strengths. <laughs> he just He's like, I think that this person would be great for... This thing, and how about we, you know, cast Maked Blair, who is maybe known more as a director, in this role, or you know, somebody falls out, and you are like, how about Jason Clark? Yeah, um, yeah, I I love talking to him; <laughs> was really fun. <laughs> but he's he's actually thinking not just about how, what a person looks like, but about essences and mm-hmm. also groupings of people. So, mm-hmm. I mean, they they like they very meticulously cast like all the different terrible white guys on that panel to be, like, very (laughs) different-looking, terrible white guys.
0: (laughs) And, like, not all of them are even the ones that you necessarily... You know, there's Tony Goldwyn, but then there's, like, the ones who don't even have any lines, but they all have to kind of go in in a mix, right?
3: Yeah, no, and they're all incredibly carefully selected so that that panel looks like in a particular way on screen. And, and he knows that the guy on the right hand side of the screen is going to nod in mm-hmm. a particular way.
0: <laughs> yeah. And he also made it sound like Nolan watches a ton of stuff, too. You know, obviously, it's his the casting director's job to know all this. But, you know, he had a story about like meeting David Crumholtz on the set of numbers. Crumholtz told me when I interviewed him, like he's paying attention in a way that is hard to imagine for someone who is as busy like you say he is.
3: Well, I, th- I think that Chris consumes a lot of pop culture and a lot of art, um, and he takes notes in his head. I, I mean, that's how he met Ludwig Gorenson, was that he knows Ryan Coogler, and Ryan Coogler invited him to a Black Panther screening, and he thought, oh, who's, who did that music? And he yeah. just sort of k- kept it in his head. Um, he's like, maybe I want to cast that guy sometime. Yeah. Or, you know, maybe I want to work with that
0: guy sometime. It's our job to keep track of what everyone's doing in the business. It doesn't feel fair when people who are making movies are also doing it. (laughs) Give us some space here.
3: Yeah. When they're they're the biggest people in the movie business. Yeah, exactly. Christopher Nolan, you have a lot of jobs.
0: Exactly. <laughs> um, the other part of the book that was so eye-opening to me is Ruth DeJong. Is that how you say her name? DeJong? Mm-hmm. The production designer. Um, just talking about, like, what they had and what they didn't have. Like, you think of this movie as being kind of, like, limitless in terms of what they're capable of. But she's like, we're running out of money, and we had to build this thing small, and we had to, like, improvise. Like, I, I thought I knew a lot about how movies are made, but I was kind of astonished by what she had to scrap for to make possible for this movie.
3: Yeah, I think that um, I mean. So, so what you're talking about is that they thought they had a twenty million dollars to recreate 1940s Los Alamos on a mesa somewhere, and then it turned out that they had three. Um, and <laughs> not and, nothing, but
0: still <laughs> not
3: nothing. Definitely not nothing. Um, but I found that really interesting because I think that you know my understanding was that that Christopher Nolan gave Universal a number. And was like, we're gonna come in under this number, and if I come in under this number, and I come under under this time, which is like one minute less than three hours, yep. like, <laughs> like we, you know, he can sort of do this unfettered. And I, I, there's a, there's a great book by Tom Schoen called The Nolan Variations, which I don't know if you've read, but mm. it's, it sort of talks about his process throughout. I, it's sort of the most extensive interviews he's done. And I think that that was something that he learned was that, was that if you can keep things tight and on a budget, then you actually have much more creative freedom than if you're someone who starts going over budget, then you start getting a lot more like oversight. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so with the Los Alamos set, uh, it just sounded really funny. It was just that that they're like, okay, so we can't shoot here and, you know, we can't do this location um, that you wanted. Sorry, we're going to have to, like, you know, create Washington, D.C. in Santa Fe um, because we get better tax credits for actors' salaries yeah, <laughs> various other things. But um, they made a white um, model. Chris likes working with actual physical models rather than digital recreations of like what the set's going to look like. So they were building this model out of foam board and pencil and Xacto knives and all this stuff. And and then you know they got the news that they had to cut the budget by a significant amount and we're just throwing buildings off of this <laughs> model. And <laughs> like one one person referred to it as a graveyard of buildings that were <laughs> under the table. <laughs> they're like, okay, so I guess we don't need that building. We don't need that building. And then and then they had to sort of also discard walls and other things to just do a forced perspective so that it just it looks fine to the eye, but but that they're not building floors and you just like open a door and you walk into a dirt uh, room.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I think the part that blew my mind that I never would have thought of is the train that they built in like some basement somewhere like on some tires and like Nolan himself is like shaking the train box as they're filming. Like what a magic trick they pull off or things like that.
3: Yeah, that's the scene where... I think David Cromhall says is, Robbie is talking to Killian about them both being Jews from the other side of the park.
0: Tries to feed him an orange, very famously,
3: <laughs> very famously. <laughs> Probably didn't he didn't eat it? As no, I of remember course not. In the scene, <laughs> yeah. I think did you when you? I I think it was in your your Emily Blunt interview where she's like they just lived on cigarettes and martinis. Yeah. That was <laughs> well, that's an
0: American Prometheus too, right? Where it like kind of makes you want a martini, but also like worry about them and their.
3: Well, I mean habits. they just they. He died quite young of terrible lung cancer. And um, I did learn that Oppenheimer... I mean, the the props uh, the props master, Guillaume Deloche, he had done a lot of research on Oppenheimer, and he, he said that um, his fingers were so yellow from smoking, like, they just never unstained. They were oh, always gosh. yellow. And then also, he smoked, like, 200 cigarettes a day. Like, some insane number, and that he never even had to light a match ever because he <laughs> just did would one just to the next. light a cigarette oh <laughs> with another cigarette. Um, but that was the, the, that was in the days. Yep, That, <laughs> where,
0: that was the time. Um, yeah. So for writing about movies you're going to do after this, like now that you have seen this much behind the curtain, like how has it changed the way you think about movies? Do you now just consider it a miracle that any movie has ever made? Cause that's kind of how I feel reading your book.
3: <laughs> it, it does feel like a miracle. Um, I think I just have a much better understanding of what everybody's job on a film set is yeah, and how there is just this very intricate dance that all these people have to do where if you don't get your job done over here, then the whole like tiny Jenga tower just falls, uh, falls apart. Yeah. Um, I found it was really different. I wrote a piece about Ferrari and how they put this, the racing scenes together. And I, I felt like I had just a much better understanding of what everybody's job on a film set is. Now I want to, like, spend more time on film sets. I'm like, how do we write about these movies and we don't spend enough time Mm -hmm. on the sets? Um, I think I've also become friendlier with some actors, which I thought was not, you know, in the past I've kept, like, a really professional distance and... I've spent more time with them. And I'm like, wow, this is a really different personality type than me. <laughs> in terms of like, <laughs> like that I am sort of retreating. And I, you know, like to write, I like to observe. And yeah, so I was really lucky that, that I threw this really spontaneous New York book launch at a friend's house. And I had met some of the actors. I met Crumholtz and Oli Haskivi, um on the strike line uh, for mm-hmm. when in the summer. And we had kept in touch. And I invited them to this thing, thinking they would never show up at my friend's house in Brooklyn. And they showed up. <laughs> <laughs> and they showed up. And they were willing to, like, talk to the crowd. And then... And then, my friend who writes at page six wanted to write about the thing, and I was so nervous about telling these guys. I was like, "Oh my God, oh oh, like the so is s- here or no the, I mean she wasn't even there. she just wanted to write about it afterwards, but I was like, you know they came in good faith, and they they don't you know." I I don't want to blow up their spot that they came. And and they were like, yeah, of course. (laughs) Which is is just like, oh, yeah, like your job is putting yourself in front of cameras and making people happy and sort of sharing all of yourself. And it's not a problem for you whatsoever. Whereas like for me, just in my writing, um, getting to the point where I was like, willing to like, say, like, put myself in first person sometimes in pieces. <laughs> it, was like yeah. a big, it was a big leap. <laughs>
0: what else it also feels like a lot of those guys are like, yeah, this is maybe the best movie I'll ever make. Like, I may as well like be as visible for it as I can be as long as possible. Like, I feel like I do the same thing.
3: Yeah, yeah. And they're, they're just utterly delighted to have done it. Um, I mean, they're all just Nolan fanboys and they have this Opin group text, which is now famous, um, that Jack Quaid started because he got stranded in Los Alamos, um, <laughs> he went. To, he went to the grocery store and couldn't get an Uber back, and so had to steal a shopping cart and was like driving it along. And he started a text chain because he was like, "Someone come Guys, pick Does me up. anyone have a car?"
0: <laughs> so maybe by the end of this ride, they'll invite you onto the Op and Homies group text. You can only um, be so lucky.
3: Oh, I I think that that is a very long way off. <laughs>
0: That does it for today's show. The next time you hear us, it will be our live show from Los Angeles with Lily Gladstone and Jacqueline West and Julie O'Keefe, the costume designers of Killers of the Flower Moon. We're really excited about it. We're excited for you to listen, even if you were not there in person. In the meantime, find us at Vanity Fair on social media at VF Awards Insider. I am at Katie Rich and David.
2: David Canfield, 97.
0: Our editor and producer, as always, is Brett Fuchs.